This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Right now, I'm joined in the studio by Mark Fury, who's the Artistic Director of Gertrude Contemporary, located at 200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, where the organisation has exhibited work and supported artists through its studio program since 1985. But it's not going to be there for much longer. Mark, you're moving out of Fitzroy. Hello, Richard. Yes, we're moving out of Fitzroy. We're moving to the uh, top end of Thornbury on High Street, um, Preston South. How do the city of Yarra feel about moving uh, the organisation moving on? Because it means they lose yet another arts organisation. Um, well, look, I think it's a, an enormous loss for the city of Yarra, but a great uh, gain for the city of Darapin. So, to talk us through the move, what's uh, what's driven this? Because Gertrude Contemporary, as we said, located at 200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, since its inception, so 32 years, the building was sold several years ago and there was talk of maybe moving into the uh, Collingwood Contemporary Arts Precinct, but clearly that those discussions have come to naught. Uh, look, those those discussions. Um, yeah, let's let's get to the pointy end. Uh, those discussions um, went on for about um, eight years with the Collingwood Arts Precinct, um, and essentially, where there was an urgency for Gertrude to move, we um, our lease was expiring and was about to um, increase quite dramatically. And um, you know, while going into those conversations with um, CAP. Um, you know, very fruitful discussions, but in in the end, um, simply our, our timing didn't sync up. Yeah, which is unfortunate, but it is the way things happen. But the flip side of that, as you say, the organisation moving north, uh, so following in many ways the move of artists who used to call Fitzroy home and have been driven out of the area by rising prices and sure. so forth. We've seen a wave of people moving further north to Preston to uh, uh, and the suburbs beyond. So it makes sense in some ways that Gertrude Contemporary relocate closer to where that artistic community sure, is now absolutely. located. Yeah. I mean, I, I think to put it into a context like Gertrude Street in in the 80s and through the 90s was a, a very different place to what it is now. Um, certainly through the 90s, a lot of artists lived in, in that area and around that area. And, um, you know, I think uh, over the last 10 years, the, the, the suburbs changed quite dramatically in, in many ways and in quite a positive way. But uh, certainly we're looking forward to moving to... Um, High Street and and adding to the sort of dynamism of that suburb. Now, one of the challenges of moving an organisation like Gertrude Contemporary is that it's not just an exhibition space uh, or a number of exhibition spaces, in fact, but it is the the Studio Artists Program, which is a a key part of Gertrude. There's, what, 16 studios? Uh, 16 studios, yeah. Yeah. So I guess when we, um, my um, co-director and I, Christine Tipton, when we came on board at Gertrude in uh, March of last year, there was it was already the date for the move was already um, set. So we sort of set about um, speaking to all of our artists and stakeholders and board and staff about you know what were the kind of the things that we were most treasured and and, and non negotiable in terms of what we are as an organisation. And certainly within that, there was uh, a desire to keep absolutely to keep the studios and the exhibition spaces together. So, which means that we were looking for quite a, a large piece of real estate. 
Um, we went through, looked at, you know, probably 20 different properties around the inner city precincts across Melbourne. Um, and when we saw the High Street building, we were, you know, really enamoured by its um, its location, its enormous street frontage, its um, the simplicity of the building itself. So what we'll be what we are building as of this week is um, a new complex with two new gallery spaces and sixteen studios and um, shared communal areas and workshop facilities for the studio artists. Now, a couple of people have said to me, "Oh, if they're moving out of Gertrude Street, does that mean they'll be changing their name to High Street Contemporary or something?" Oh, that's a good name. But uh, somehow, I suspect that the the name of the organisation doesn't necessarily have to reflect its physical location. Yeah, well, I guess um, this has been the move, the necessity of the move has, has, has been in the pipeline for a very long time. And um, I think it was in 2002 when Max Delaney was the director, had changed the name from 200 Gertrude Street to Gertrude Contemporary Art Spaces. And even then, uh, what is that, 15 years ago... <laughs> It was, um, I guess, trying to disentangle the organisation from its actual street address. So that was, a number of years later, um, abbreviated further to Gertrude Contemporary. So certainly that's the name that we'll, we will take with us, the High Street. Now, before Gertrude Contemporary farewells its current premises at 200 Gertrude Street Fitzroy, it's time, of course, for an exhibition which you've curated, The End of Time, The Beginning of Time. Tell us about the exhibition itself. What is it? Is this an opportunity to summarise the history of Gertrude Contemporary in its current location or is it an acknowledgement of its current identity and the, the current group of artists associated with it? Um, I guess... Look, I think for me fundamentally it's about um, a, a tribute to the site, to the space. So the work, the exhibition draws on um, works and projects of spanning through the last three decades. Uh, so it is, a, um, I guess, a, a tribute to the architecture. It's a tribute to the communities that formed around within the organisation over that period. And I guess also a... Um, an acknowledgement of, of the need for change and, and the desire for change. So we are restaging um, 20 different projects over that period, um, so showing works that were generated in the studios in, in the, in the mid-'80s and, and right through to, to a number of new commissions for this project. So it's um, definitely not a, a summation of the organisation's history, but it's, it's certainly a... Um, I guess a historical collage of, of how artists have engaged with and um, occupied that site. Given that over, what, 300 artists have been resident in the studios at Gertrude during its time, yeah, it would be an almost impossible challenge to create an exhibition that included and referenced all of them. So how have you gone about approaching and selecting the artists to include in the exhibition? Um, that is a great question. Well, look, it's, um, you know, I certainly have um, drawn on the knowledge and experience of, of former staff and directors of the organisation, sort of spanning back to its um, initiation. And, and I asked um, those former directors and curators to um, suggest works that they considered to be kind of highlights within the programme over... Over that period, and um, 
But yes, yeah, certainly looking for things that were quite realisable. You know, definitely one of the assets of Gertrude over this time is that artists have had the agency to um, develop large-scale projects that um, have, by their very nature, been ephemeral. So in some instances, we're showing original works from that, and in other instances, we're, ma- we're showing works that signify much larger projects. And you've mentioned new commissions as well. Tell us about the artists who've been commissioned for this exhibition. Um, well, there's really just two two projects that have been commissioned for this um, for the the end of time, the beginning of time. And one of them is um, a new work, um, site specific work by um, Rico Rennie, who was um, in the studio program up until a couple of years ago, and that is. Um, a new commission around the the central column of the main space. And I guess in many ways that was to um, pay tribute to the land on which uh, 200 Gertrude Street sits and to kind of put um, a work by uh, uh, an excellent um, Indigenous artist at the kind of the very centre of, of, of the exhibition. So I guess that functions as a spine around which the rest of the exhibition unfolds. Uh, the other new work is a work that um, Natalie Thomas has been researching over the last 14 years, which is a, um, I guess, a, um, a, a love tree or a love matrix, uh, a sex tree, she's actually calling it. But that charts the a number of um, uh, relationships that have formed around Gertrude and around the Melbourne art scene over over that period. Um, first names only, so it's not uh, too salacious, but it is a very intriguing uh, document about Melbourne. Well, and I love the idea of that uh, honest response to the interconnected nature of the artistic community in and around Gertrude. And obviously that interconnection includes some romantic and some physical entanglement. So manifesting that in a way which acknowledges the organic growth and change in patterns and structures and relationships between people over time sure. that, that Gertrude has facilita- facilitated. It seemed a, a, a very uh, appropriate part of the exhibition. Uh, appropriate, yeah. Well, you know, I guess... Or inappropriate, depending <laughs> well, on the artists involved. Well, it depends who's on that uh, sex tree, I guess. I'm, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna, I think I might go to the opening on Friday night and just stand near the tree and eavesdrop on exactly, conversations. Exactly, yeah. Uh Most of it, to the best of her knowledge, is, is true. Um, look, and I think, you know, beyond just being an organisation that um, presents works and supports artists to produce works, you know, the organisation really has been about the people that have been involved in it. And as as you know, there's been over 300 um, artists that have gone through the studio program. There have been literally thousands of artists that have exhibited there over the last um, 32 years. So I guess the that particular work and I guess the exhibition more broadly kind of pays homage to... Um, to the community that have formed around Gertrude over this time. And this is also the community that we will bring to us um, in Preston South. So I guess in some ways the exhibition is about um, recognising some of the significant um, artistic projects that have been developed for and at Gertrude and to um, acknowledge the... the, um, the great contribution of our alumni artists and to recognise that in a, a public sense and to um, usher them down to our new location.
The end of time, the beginning of time, is on from the 5th of May to the 10th of June at Gertrude Contemporary, 200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, and marks the end of its 32-year lease and occupation of the premises since 1985, and uh, then ushers uh, its history north to... uh, what is currently a disused furniture warehouse uh, on High Street. So it's uh, 21 to 31 High Street in Preston. Preston South. Preston South, yeah. yeah. Um, one of the risks for any organisation uh, moving premises like this is that you, presumably you've signed, say, a 10-year lease on the site. Does that There is the risk that in another 10 years you may have to up stumps and move again. When Triple R moved here to its current premises in East Brunswick, it bought the building outright. Is that an opportunity, uh, is that an option for Gertrude at this point in its history or are you uh, risking that you the, the move is hopefully not something you'll have to do again in another decade? Um, look, we're, we're very um, conscious of that and, and this has certainly been the issue in our current location and not having the um, luxury and security of um, building ownership, you know, as, as with anybody that rents, we're in a, a situation of, of limited precarity. Um, this next move is certainly the next phase for the organisation and... Uh, during that time, certainly, we will be um, looking into very closely um, the potential for securing the organisation for a, a much longer future. I look forward to perhaps another 32 years and more of Gertrude Contemporary in its new location at 21 to 31 High Street, Preston South. When will doors be opening there? Uh, doors, will we will... Um, we're building currently, and our first show there, and I'm going to get this wrong, the first show will open at the end of July. I think it is the around the 28th of July, and that will open up with uh, one of the Octopus series of annual flagship exhibitions um, this year, curated by um, Georgie Ma, who's the uh, director of Next Way Festival. Great. I look forward to finding out more, and uh, we may have to uh, organise to get uh, her on to okay, as a, a kind of bookend for uh, we've just wrapped up the history of Gertrude very very briefly and uh, a new chapter in that history starts so if you want more information about Gertrude Contemporary just jump online www.gertrude.org.au the exhibition The End of Time The Beginning of Time which uh, Mark has curated on from the 5th of May until the 10th of June and after that doors close studios and artists and organisation archives history and everything else move north to, uh, as you've heard, to uh, 21 to 31 High Street, Preston South. Mark, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. If I may just add something briefly, Richard. Um, we um, There will be another, beyond this exhibition, there will be another event that we're planning, um, which I guess is the true nostalgic turn of our program. But on the um, Saturday, the 24th of June, we'll be hosting an event um, throughout the day and into the evening um, called Lights On, Lights Off, A Farewell to 200 Gertrude Street, which will be, um, at that time, the space will be completely empty. So across the gallery spaces, the office spaces and the studio spaces. And that will be an opportunity for um, audiences, former artists, prospective artists to come in and and pay uh, uh, respect, I guess, to the building and to see it in a way that it's never been seen before, before it goes on to be something else. Whatever that next life may be. Mm. As a Fitzroy local, I have to say I'm going to miss the place.
But I look forward to finding out what happens next. It's always one of the... Nothing is ever fixed in stone, and if it were, sometimes that can result in stagnation. So uh, here's to the next 32 years and more of Gertrude Contemporary in its new location. Mark Ferry, thanks for joining us. Pleasure, Richard. Thank you. Theatre maker and writer and director Daniel Lamon joins us in the studio to talk about his work Awakening at 45 Downstairs. Daniel, hello. Good morning. So this is... A, a remount of a production that was staged last year at Trades Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also uh, a contemporised and adaptation of what a play that was originally written in the 1800s? 1891, yes. Uh, the German play Spring Awakening, which uh, probably most people in the last 20 or so years are probably more familiar with the musical adaptation that happened in the early 2000s. Uh, yeah, it's a German play written in the 18. 18- 90s about teenagers uh, and their sexual awakening and their experience of growing up in a very uh, constricted and conservative society that does not prepare them to understand what that means. The terrifying thing is about that, of course, is how little has changed. Yeah, that's the shock that comes. I remember when I first read it, I would have been in my early 20s and I was really surprised at how immediate and contemporary the play and how dangerous the play felt it was saying a lot of very pertinent and very uh accurate things about the experiences of being a teenager and i was really shaken by it because i thought how is a play that's now over 100 years old at that point how how can it still speak so accurately and that was partly the reason for wanting to revisit it and not simply just present it as Vedekind, as Frank Vedekind originally wrote it, but to play with it and say, well, why are we still talking about this? Why are teenagers still not being educated about their bodies and the bodies of others and the experience of growing up and what the transition from innocence to experience is? Uh, And particularly in Australia in the last two years where the government has made it quite clear that they don't really care about that transitional period for young people from childhood to adulthood. Certainly, as we've seen with the the hysterical, at times, debate around safe schools, for yes. example, and uh, a program that is uh, has talked about uh, gender transition as well as homosexuality mm. and, and many other aspects. It's clear that there are people who, when it's the classic, won't someone think of the children response, yeah. that's exactly what programs like that are doing. They are thinking of the children and they're empowering them. And I think it's the empowerment that perhaps the, the conservative uh, side of, of the country um is up in arms and clutching its pearls about definitely and that's all of that all the stuff that has been that came out because we started creating awakening last year as the safe schools debate was starting to really kick into gear and what we were realizing really digging into it is all of the things that were being debated about around that program are all addressed pretty much in Vedekin's play 120-something years ago where he's saying exactly the same thing. It's about empowering them to understand who they are and to give them the space to explore and to be who they feel they need to be and also to make to have the room to find that but also to give them the education to know what they should and should not do to one another, uh, which is a big point for us with the show the education of not just understanding what uh, for teenagers to understand what their their own bodies are doing but what that means about 
the bodies of others and how they should treat others and what they can and cannot do to others, even though they may not understand what's happening to themselves. Now, you've made this play uh, with a group of students from Monash University. Yes, from a Monash Uni student theatre, which was a department of the MSA that I discovered directing in when I was doing my undergrad at Monash uh, 10 years ago uh, and I've come back to must a few times to work with them as a professional director uh, to create new works often quite difficult and confronting and complex works uh, to push the students and see what they're capable of uh, push must as an organization uh, and as a as a theatre company uh, and also to push myself because they basically go we trust you we'll give you the resources go and try and break some rules, which we certainly did with this one. We tried to anyway. Well, certainly when I saw it last year at Trades Hall, it was confronting and it was deeply moving. It was one of those kind of plays where as it ended, I was not just wiping away tears, but I was on, on the verge of being a complete sobbing mess <laughs> um, and really struggling a little bit to hold, hold it together. So it, I found it a really compelling and powerful and very moving play as well as a, a beautifully astute and well-made piece of theatre but it's also a very personal play for you I believe. Yes uh, it was one of those weird things that around the time when I was when I first discovered Spring Awakening it was around the time where I was going through some very intense personal experiences uh, uh, particularly I had a boyfriend who was still a teenager at the time uh, and he was going through uh, tremendous depression a lot of it linked to the pressures that he'd had placed on himself during his uh, VC years and also pressures about his sexuality. Uh, and between around uh, within a few years after having read the play, he took his own life. And so the play for me, Spring Awakening was always inevitably linked to him because of the character of Moritz in the, in the original play. And I could see very distinctly the link uh, and the, uh, the mirroring that was happening between what happened to him and what was happening to his character. So part of wanting to do Spring Awakening in some capacity, whatever capacity, I was happy to do the play. I was happy to do the musical. I was just happy. I just really wanted to engage with this work of art. It was also partly about exploring what that experience meant to me in with, within that and, what, and more than anything, creating something and exploring it in a way where I could make things better inevitably the aim is all what with anything that with that kind of stuff is to try and stop people from doing it from believing that taking their own life is the best option and to also have the time for the audience to sit and explore that and think about that uh, there's a lot of autobiogra autobiographical stuff in awakening for me most of which i don't really want the audience to ever know not for because i don't think it's you know important for them but just because i want them to bring their own experiences and their own responses to it uh, but it did make making the show and still makes making the show quite cathartic uh, and quite confronting for me at points where i sit there and go oh that's very close to home that's quite that's that's quite a bit <laughs> Which then also raises a whole heap of issues around your duty of care, working with the, the actors, yes. for example. Uh, and we could it's a whole different conversation that we could unpack for a further half hour. But mm. to come back to the the idea of working with, uh, with students, yes. for example, what's different about working with students than working with, say, professional actors? Uh, the students 
um, are less professional, which some people may assume may be the case, or are they um, in some ways braver and more risk-taking because the the idea of adventure and experimentation hasn't been hammered out of them by three or four years of, of study at the VCA it's or WAPA? definitely the latter. I have to be honest, the most thrilling experiences I've had as a director have been working with university students. They have, yeah, they have a bravery. They haven't uh, had their... Um, they haven't been told what they can't do, so they're willing to give anything a try. And more importantly, when you know you propose an idea to them, they will come back at you with about three or four other ideas, most of which are really crazy and you probably can't do, but they, they foster a level of creativity and uh, rigour that a work like Awakening needs, and they bring a lot of themselves to it. I, as a director, make it a rule that a work... When, when I'm working with any actor, I want to try and bring as much of themselves into the room and into the character and into the work within, you know, safe parameters. And with students, they're more than happy to throw themselves as, as far into it as possible, but they also question every decision that you make because they want to understand why. And it's a good training as a director to be able to have to justify your decisions because if you can't justify it, then why are you doing it? Uh, But I, with Awakening, not only did I audition them, but I also interviewed them to know what they were like as people because I knew I was going to be working with them for an extended period of time. And that was as important to know that I was bringing the right kind of people onto this project, the right kind of young people. And also in terms of duty of care, that they were emotionally and mentally mature enough to handle it because that's my responsibility to make sure that they can. And the six actors that I have went above and beyond in every respect. Well, I was deeply impressed by the performances and deeply impressed by the play as well. As I said, Awakening is on from the 10th to the 21st of May at 45 downstairs. What challenges uh, does remounting a work like this uh, present given that it's, I mean, it's not been a full year uh, since, or it has? No, no, God, no. It opens, I think, a year exactly since we started working on it to begin with. So, no, it hasn't even been a year. Uh I think the big challenge is just trying to make sure that you don't lose what it was that people loved about it to begin with. I was very surprised by the reaction that Awakening got last year. I thought people might like it. I didn't think that people would find it as moving and as emotional and as confronting as they did. I certainly didn't expect to be able to sit here a year later getting the chance to do it again. So I think as much as it's been exciting to kind of fin- deal with the unfinished business of fixing everything that I wanted to fix and digging deeper into it. It's also the thing of going, well, don't lose what it was that made it work, which I think was its roughness and its immediacy and uh, and the fact they're not the most experienced actors in the world, which actually works to their advantage, I think, that they mean it, that it means something to them and not to allow them to be- not allow it to become complacent and comfortable if that makes sense. It does. Awakening at 45 downstairs. Uh, previews on Wednesday the 10th of May, so always a, a night for cheap tickets. A preview opens on Thursday the 11th of May and is running through until the 21st of May. I really, really en- uh, enjoyed, isn't necessarily quite the, the right <laughs> word, I was deeply moved and exhilarated and thrilled and confronted by this production. Um 
I gave it a standing ovation uh, on the uh, the evening I saw it. I think I was the only person doing so, but uh, hey, I'm not shy. Um, <laughs> so, Awakening at 45 Downstairs from the 10th to the 21st of May. I really enjoyed it. I'm really intrigued to see what you do with remounting and remaking it. So am I. <laughs> so am I. Daniel, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. Gaia, the name of that track, by Canadian artist Ostra from the album Future Politics. Coming up, uh, we're about to discover one of the events that is on as part of Yurimboy First Nations Arts Festival. I've had a couple of conversations on the show this year with Jacob Boehm uh, about Yurimboy, uh, which is uh, dedicated to Indigenous artists, not just from Australia, but from around the world. Right now, though, we've got uh, a couple of folk in to talk about a show called Chasing Smoke, which is has grown out of the Circus Oz Black Flip program. Davey Thompson, you're the manager of Black Flip at Circus Oz. Welcome. Hi. Uh, we also have the director of the show, uh, Natano Fanana, and performer, Hello. Lara Croydon. Welcome to you both. Hi. So, let's start, Davey. What is Black Flip at Circus Oz? Yeah, uh, Black Flip is a, it's a masterclass program. It's designed to increase representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within the circus sector. Long story short, but yeah, that's it. I love it. And it's been running for a few years. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so far, yeah, we started, it kicked off in 2000 and our first seeds were sown in 2011, I believe. And since then, we've worked with 42 Indigenous artists through the Black Flip Masterclass program. And it's really great uh, that we're doing Chasing Smoke now because you'll see a chance to see six of them in one spot. And in terms then of performing in a festival like Yurimboy, uh, Lara, tell us about the, the opportunity to present your work, to strut your stuff as part of this festival. <laughs> Strut as much as I've got. Um, it's actually, it's really important and it's, there's not a ton of opportunities to do, I think, Indigenous-specific work um, in kind of, it's particularly in the circus community at the moment um, or there hasn't been up to this point. So I think Yerimboy is just a kind of fun chance to show our stories and it is, in this show in particular, we've been trying to make it kind of cast specific so we all get to tell kind of our truth and and our story of being an aboriginal person in you know 2017 which is pretty important it's a lot of fun and you're kind of keeping it all together natano as well yeah apparently (laughs) (laughs) we have six incredibly loud and proud voices um of which uh i've had the uh awesome uh, challenge of funneling into one hour. <laughs> um, yeah. But there's 40,000 years of history there and, and we've, um, we've managed to embody that into Chasing Smoke, I think. Um, you know, and, and the beautiful thing is like all these themes and subject matters that have come about as a result of, of the process and, and one of them is what, it is what is it to be a modern day Aboriginal? Mm-hmm. I'm a black fella from another rock, I'm from Samoa, but we have a lot of similarities. Um, we all really um, hone into and, and thrive from our culture and, and our, our ancestry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was already a common language there to make the show. Um, but yeah, it is about six, it's not literally about six people. Um, but it is about six people that have unique stories, and and to make a circus show, as you all, as we all know, Australia's history in terms of blackfellas has been pretty terrible. 
Um, mm. And then when asked to make a circus show, you know, <laughs> that's, that's hard, mm. but also not because we've, uh, despite all the tragedies that we've had in the past, there's also this amazing sense of humour, mm. you know, the ability to laugh about situations. And so having that... Uh, has has made this job exciting because we now have um, an hour of craziness, <laughs> <laughs> and as well as that, that the history that you've just spoken about, and uh, yes, there is anger, but there is also humour, and there's also remarkable resilience as well. Yes. Uh, and the idea of using circus to present that resilience strikes me as something really appropriate because circus artists need to be resilient. All that bouncing around and falling over, and it helps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, totally. And I think that. Circus is kind of a fun way to represent our stories in particular. And because circus as a community also was usually like kind of outsiders traditionally. So that's kind of a spot that we tend to occupy in terms of current world. Um, So it's sort of nice that we get to be in this like little niche community and then flip around and dress up like silly people, (laughs) strut around stage, twirl if we want to, bake a cake, you know, all this stuff while talking about history and kind of current dilemmas that we face. It's a lot of fun. And one of the things that strikes me as really in, important about uh, presenting this show as part of Year and Boy is that, yeah, it's this is a, uh, a festival that is curated by and for First Nations peoples. So, yeah, whitefellas like me can come along and enjoy it, but we're not necessarily the primary audience, and that changes the focus, I would imagine, of making a work. Uh, definitely. Uh, when, when putting this show together and structuring, you know, director and cast and everything, Year and Boy was, uh, and the audience was one thing that we're definitely considering. Um, you know, First Nations Circus, we, we doesn't really exist here in Australia, but my idea of is taking this brand new art form that we're that we're desperately trying to make and really just throwing it out there and showing other blackfellas that they can come to this sector for employment for a career mm. like who doesn't want to be paid to make people laugh <laughs> like that's that's it you can spend your whole life doing that and the more that i think our communities and our young people see that on stage the more that they know that that's a safe space that they can journey to in the future mm, if they absolutely. feel like it. And tell their stories via. Yeah. Mm. And it's also then being presented at the meat market, which the entire programming of which has been taken over for Year and Boy, and not just the programming, but front of house, ticket sellers, people running the bar, the Elders Comfort Program and mm. people who are welcoming in. It's it's going to be a living example of what an Indigenous-run performing arts centre could look like, which is also really significant and really important. Yeah. It's really exciting. We're down there bumping into the space and just everything looks fantastic. Mm. Jacob's done such a good job with Urine Boy. I'm, you know, really excited to see everything else unfold around us. So in terms of directing a show like this, Natana, tell us a little bit about what you wanted to achieve with the work. Oh, look, to be honest, I didn't um, know exactly what I wanted to achieve. Um, Well, I did. I wanted to make sure that that we had an all-black cast on stage. Um, it's long overdue. We don't have enough of um, uh, what's it, diversity on stage, I believe, in Australia in terms of theatres. Um, the works that are out there, are, some, some are great. I, I can't deny that. But what I do know, notice is there isn't enough. I, I um, Just a quick history about myself. You know, I, I was part of Polytoxic. I still am. Um, and that is an Australian-Polynesian fusion company. And then Briefs, and that is um, about thrown 
gender and wind and and what it is to be masculine in all sorts and forms and now in Cassis but also always always with all my work I always try to have a cultural element present because I that's who I am and so to be given this opportunity to make a show with um all indigenous cast um that was a massive challenge for me, but one that has excited me because in my time working alongside um, Indigenous people of Australia, straight away, you know that performers, they've got something to tell, <laughs> whether it's via song, via dance, via acrobatics, it's there. And it was just a fun job for me to just channel that into independent individual little acts. Lara, how did you get involved with circus? You started up at what uh, Volcana Women's Circus in Brisbane in two thousand and thirteen. Yeah, um, I, I actually, when I was a kid, I grew up in a really small country town, and I, <laughs> I wanted to be a circus performer when I grew up uh, because I had a children's book that had a circus performer in it, and I was like, "That's amazing! I want to do that." Um, but unfortunately, in a small country town, there's not really anything, let alone a circus program. We didn't even have a supermarket, so very little chance to start learning. Um, And then once I moved to Brisbane to study theatre, then there was kind of more opportunities around. So I eventually kind of got the guts and courage to give my dream a shot. Um, So I've been doing that for a little while. And Volcano was the start of that, which is a really nice, safe, um, kind of warm, welcoming space to start learning circus. And I kind of started as an aerialist. So I did um, trapeze primarily um, and then did black flip. Uh, with Davey for a couple of years. Then Natano saw that I knew how to juggle a little bit, so now I'm a juggler, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Davey, in terms of the Black Flip as a program at Circus Oz, obviously this is one aspect of it, but how talk to us about how you you get people involved kind of because i know yeah. that circus Oz goes out into country and performs mm-hmm. kind of out there sometimes and so people can literally kind of see the show and go oh we want to try and get involved with that so how do you how do you recruit people for black flip yeah um so my job sort of covers three tiers it's um uh so there's internal cultural awareness which is really fun i get to talk to other circus Oz staff members about black politics um there's education training and employment which encompasses our black flip program and other staff members but then there's the community engagement part, which is which is my favourite bit. I get to I just go out and I do a lot of gossiping. Really, <laughs> I spend a lot of time on Facebook. I'll go, okay, where's this talent coming from? Where's this person? Um, because it's those really informal methods that I have to rely on to find people. Because I guess Aboriginal circus performers we're really under the radar. Um, there's a few out there doing amazing things, like Dale Woodbridge Brown. He's actually in the new Briefs show up in Brisbane that's premiering in a minute. So it's really Today. great to see them. Yeah go up and out but it's like okay great where's the next lot coming from that's what i need to find and it certainly seems like you're finding them i'm doing my best (laughs) (laughs) chasing smoke is running from the 6th to the 9th of may so that's uh saturday sunday monday and tuesday performances at 8 30 p.m each night at the meat market in blackwood street north melbourne as part of yurimboy first nations arts festival more info at yurimboy that's y-i-r-r-a-m-b-o-i yurimboy.net.au the festival itself runs from tomorrow the 5th through until the 14th of may and there's all kinds of fantastic other programs you may have heard on breakfasters earlier this morning talking about some of the panel discussions that are on there's uh there's dance there's visual arts programs there's programs in language and teaching Mm. language and so um yeah, it's an opportunity to engage uh, at a diverse and rich level with um, the world's oldest 
living culture and a culture that is still alive and thriving, yeah. mm. despite all the shit that has been thrown <laughs> at it. Yeah. Yeah. Folks, hey thanks for coming in. Oh, thank thanks you for having us. Yeah, and, thank you. Uh, yeah, really looking forward to seeing uh, Chasing Smoke uh, at Urimboy. I'm heading along on Sunday night, but uh, I reckon uh, people haven't booked tickets yet. They should book them now because I'm yeah, sure they're, they're going to sell out. Fast. Absolutely, yeah. they're selling nice and quick, so jump on it. Urimboy.net.au. I've been talking with Davey, Lara and Natano. Thanks heaps, folks. Cheers. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.